Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This will be episode 11, and it's our first episode of 2021. Well done, everybody. We made it. I hope you've had as nice a Christmas as possible this year, and let's hope that the next one is, well, less complicated. This is the second of our two Christmas-themed episodes, bookending the festive season. Last time, we went back to the 1800s for a pre-Yuletide disaster. This time round, we're coming a lot closer to the present for a bit of a less dramatic and tragic accident, but one that happened just after the Christmas break. As ever, thanks to everybody for listening, sharing and liking. Please continue. It's lovely to have you here, so please do keep coming back. If you haven't come to hang out with us on social media, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at at Signals to Danger, or you could even follow me personally at at Daniel Fox Rail. This time around, I'd like to give a special thanks to our new patron, Tom. Happy to have you on board. If you as well think you'd like to contribute a couple of quid a month towards the running of the podcast, then please get yourself over to patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. As ever, the last thing for the intro for me this week is our bi-weekly REIB update. A report was released on the 23rd of December into a runaway wagon which derailed Clitheroe in Lancashire. This was a fine example of how trap points can protect a main line from unauthorised movements, so it's well worth a look at. With the intro out of the way, let's move into the episode. The darkness enveloped the train. Bleary-eyed travellers sat in silent fear as the reality of what had happened had sunk in. The journey home from a Christmas break in the small hours of the morning had taken a terrible turn. This time round, it's 2010 and we've come to the Summit Tunnel. Investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. One lies metres away appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out and how each of these accidents has shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today 
I will be the one taking you through this podcast as ever. Last time we were here, we talked about an accident just before Christmas. Like I said earlier, this time round, I want to discuss one that happened just afterwards. Now, in order to do this, I've decided to pay a visit to 2010 and an accident a little closer to home than the last few episodes. 2010 was, as most are, an eventful one. In January, the world's current tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, was officially opened in Dubai. Later in the month, Haiti was rocked by a 7.0 magnitude earthquake, killing 360,000 people, the 10th deadliest on record. Closer to home, the middle of the year saw an ash cloud from a, well, unpronounceable Icelandic volcano close European airspace for a week, prompting a Royal Navy exercise to help repatriate stranded Brits who had hit the continent in search of sangria and suntans. The infamous 2010 general election left us with the option of being either lib-labbed or condemned, and we ended up with a coalition government, with David Cameron as PM, and Nick Clegg in the newly created role of Deputy PM, while July brought us the televised manhunt of gunman Raoul Mort in Northumberland, and it was decided by a High Court judge that Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, would never see the outside of a prison. The decommissioning of the HMS Ark Royal, the then flagship of the Royal Navy, brought us into December and to the end of the year. At this time on the railway, we're now firmly back in the present era of franchised rail operators, and the franchise that we're talking about at this time was Transpennine Express. This franchise is currently branded as, funnily enough, Transpennine Express. Operated by First Group, the UK-based transport company, The company operates services across the north of England and into Scotland. Back in 2010, this franchise was still operated by First Group, but in partnership with the French-based Keolis. So at this time, the company traded as First Transpennine Express. It would be fair for me to say that this operator is very local, and I'm fairly familiar with their operations. Like most train operating companies, their name is often abbreviated, in this case to either FKTPE, First Keyless Transparent Express, FTPE, First TPE, and more often than not, for simplicity's sake, just TPE. In the Christmas of 2010, as on most years, the majority of the UK rail network shut down for Christmas. Over the 25th and 26th, pretty much every passenger train didn't run. Trains were stabled in depots and stations, and maintenance work was allowed to continue unimpeded. In key locations over the shutdown, the Orange Army of network rail engineers and contractors swarmed the tracks and carried out their work, free of the burden of passing services. Most of the train crew in the country enjoyed the time with their families and the seasonal festivities continued unabated. The only drivers around the network would be those brought in for frost protection, so turning over train engines, or those driving essential freight or works trains that were still running. For a few days, large swathes of the network didn't see a single train for the entire shutdown. Rails didn't shake with passing wheels, platforms didn't vibrate, and tunnels didn't echo. The Trans-Pennine network, as you may have picked up, involves running trains across the Pennine Hills, often referred to as the backbone of England 
This is a range of hills and mountains which stretches down from Northumberland to the Peak District. Between the cities of Manchester and Leeds is one of the most substantial parts of this range of hills. The M62 motorway crosses them here, and the summit of the motorway at Rishworth Moor is the highest point on the UK motorway network. This topology means that building a railway is somewhat more challenging. While the M62 winds down a hill from Rishworth into Manchester, this slope would be unthinkable for any conventional railway. Rather, several more favourable routes were carved out where slopes were less severe and tunnels completed the job. The main route utilised by First Transpennine Express across the Pennines was, and it still is, the main line via the former mill town of Huddersfield. Now, I lived in Huddersfield for a time, and the station building there is a fine example of railway architecture. In fact, the oft-quoted fact about this is that the station frontage was described by John Betjeman as the most splendid in England. Now, this route climbs out of Manchester through the town of Staley Bridge before it winds up the valley beneath Saddleworth Moor and eventually reaches the western end of Standage Tunnel. Standage is one of the main railway tunnels across the Pennines and is just over five miles long. Quite the engineering feat, this tunnel takes 99% of TPE services across from east to west and back again. But this would create real issues if there was a problem on this line. If an accident occurred or an engineering issue. If there was what we would call a loss of route, then this would cripple the company's operations. It would be like cutting off someone's blood supply at their neck, it's all got to pass through there. To prevent this kind of issue, all UK train operating companies have pre-planned diversion routes. These are routes that circumvent the normal route and create additional options should we lose a part of it. To describe this, again I'll use the example of TPE, it makes sense seeing as we're talking about that company in this episode. The part of the network that this company calls its core is the section that the vast majority of the services pass through. From the city of York, down to Leeds via Micklefield Junction, then leads onto Huddersfield via Dewsbury, and Huddersfield to Manchester via Standage Tunnel. If the line via Micklefield Junction is blocked, TPE will send services between York and Leeds via Methley and Castleford. If the section via Dewsbury is lost, services will divert via the town of Normanton and then back to Huddersfield. These routes take longer, and they're round the houses, is one way of describing it, so the, the timetable goes out the window but they allow services to keep moving. The last one of the diversions in this area avoids the line between Huddersfield and Manchester via Stanage. There is another route through the rugged terrain in this area, and it's the route that runs through the Calder Valley. From Huddersfield, the line runs back out to Brickhouse, and then down past Halifax through Hebden Bridge, and east towards Manchester through the valleys. Shortly after the town of Todmorden, the line curves south and enters another tunnel, the Summit Tunnel. One of the oldest railway tunnels in the world, Summit Tunnel was built between 1838 and 1841 and stretches 1.6 miles south of its northern portal. Now after this feature, the line continues on to Manchester via Rochdale and from here, services can rejoin the normal route. This diversion in particular is lengthy. It's double the time that it would normally take to travel the normal route. But, as I said before, the trade-off is worth it. 
you still manage to move people around and you mitigate some of the more operational issues, such as unit imbalances or crew stranded on the wrong side of the country. However, using these diversionary routes isn't quite as simple as just telling the crew to you know, go the other way, as nice as that would be. I believe I've mentioned this before, but train crew, both drivers and conductors, train managers, etc., they need to have an in-depth understanding of the routes that they operate on. This concept is called route knowledge, and it means that these professionals can demonstrate an absolute comprehension of the routes from start to finish. They should be able to be dropped on any part of the route at random, and they'll tell you where they are, where the next feature is, and what that feature is. They could tell you the line speed, the name of each line, the direction of travel, and a driver could tell you where the next signal was. In fact, I'm sure you get the idea at this point. When train crew are confident that they hold this knowledge, they are tested, and then they're qualified to work trains on that route, and this process is known as signing the route. While everybody obviously signs the normal routes, it's crucial to flexibility that as many as possible sign the diversions as well. My better half is a conductor, and in addition to her core route, she needs to sign three separate diversionary routes. Understanding and knowing the paperwork side of this is not the only piece to the concept of route knowledge. In addition to theory, there's a practical requirement to this as well. It will likely vary from company to company, but most will require you to work a train over your diversions at least once every X months. It could be three, it could be five, it could be six. It's a sound concept, but I'm sure you can see the issue when you only use these routes every now and then. How do you keep people trained if they don't work the routes? Which brings me to my next point. Have you ever looked at train times late at night or early in the morning and wondered why the journey takes so long? Why a two-hour journey suddenly becomes three or even more? This is because TOX will timetable some of their services to travel via these diversionary routes. Giving crews an opportunity to refresh their knowledge, it's a concept known as route retention, All of this, via somewhat of a tangent, brings us back round to just after Christmas 2010. had shut down for Christmas, as we said earlier, and the 27th of December saw trains come back to the railway. All TPE services on the 27th ran as normal, via Stanage and through the main line, without incident and if anything a little busier than previous years, because due to a lack of services in some areas being provided by another operator in the region, Northern Rail, there was a dispute between members of the RMT and Northern's management. The 27th had seen a substantial number of Northern services cancelled due to industrial action. Passengers who would normally have used Northern's trains sometimes found themselves on TPE services, where that was a valid alternative. But whatever happened, it was safe to say that the seasonal slumber of the railways had come to a close. At quarter to eight that evening, a driver and conductor booked on for their shifts at York Train Crew Depot. They proceeded to take over a Manchester airport-bound service. 
This train was a Class 185 diesel multiple unit, a three-carriage train built by Siemens. Another side effect of the terrain TPE services ran over was that they needed powerful trains to climb the hills at line speed and provide an effective timetable to passengers. With this in mind, the 185s had been designed powerful. Under each of the three carriages, a 750 horsepower engine was slung, which was able to propel the trains up the inclines of the Pennines at speed. The service travelled from York westbound via the main line through Huddersfield and Stanage and into Manchester Piccadilly. At Piccadilly, the train reversed direction and ran back down the line to the station at Manchester Airport. This point, the driver and conductor changed onto yet another train and worked it back as far as Manchester Piccadilly, where they were due to have a booked break. These breaks are diagrammed into a member of staff's day, allocated times to ensure that they receive the amount of rest which is mandated by regulations governing the industry. After they'd had this break, they picked up another train and worked that back down to the airport as late night ticked over into early morning. At midnight and 38 minutes, this train which they'd worked down to Manchester Airport became 1 Papa 02, bound for York. It left Manchester Airport Station and headed back into the city. Papa 02 was one of the services which was selected for route retention due to the obscure hours of its running and the lower passenger numbers. It ran up the normal route between Manchester Airport and Piccadilly, but instead of entering a bay platform and reversing, it called at one of the two through platforms and collected passengers there. The train left Piccadilly, now carrying 45 people and two train crew, and continued on towards York. Because of route retention, instead of heading east straight away and up to Staley Bridge and Stanage, the service ran west a little further to Salford, where it reversed direction and headed back into Manchester city centre to pass through Victoria Station. From here, the train continued to the north of the city and through to Rochdale in the foothills of the Pennines. At around 1.22 in the morning, 1 Papa 02 entered the southern portal of Summit Tunnel at 70 miles an hour. Being on a train at night can be quite a disorientating experience, as you travel along in the pitch black, especially in rural areas with little line-side lighting. You whip along at the same speed as during the day, but with far less frame of reference. Yep, trains have headlights, but if you think about how far your car headlights stretch at night in front of you, there isn't much of a difference. As the 185 stormed into Summit Tunnel, this effect was only compounded by the close walls. 40 seconds after the train entered the tunnel, the driver applied his brakes for 4 seconds to help bring the train's speed down to 65 miles an hour for a reduction in the speed of the line. For the next 13 seconds, the train coasted through the pitch darkness and its speed crept down to 62 miles an hour. This was the point the driver saw something ahead which would have been terrifying to him. At over 60 miles an hour, the train was barreling down towards a pile of debris over the line. 150 metres ahead. He immediately applied the full service brake of the train. Four seconds later, the train struck the pile of debris, which it was now clear was a pile of ice underneath one of the ventilation shafts of the tunnel, travelling at 57 miles an hour. Upon the impact, all four of the wheels on the front bogey of the train were lifted from the track, 
and landed nine metres further on, derailed to the left of the running rails. The front left corner of the cab had smashed into the tunnel wall, and after another four seconds, the driver hit the emergency brake. The train continued to slow over the next 254 metres, when it finally ground to a halt in the pitch darkness of the tunnel. Following the accident, training kicked in for the crew on the train. The conductor tried to call the driver on his cab-to-cab intercom, but was unable to reach him. Concerned for his colleague, he made his way forward through the train to the front cab, reassuring passengers as he went. He found the driver stood in the leading cab. He hadn't been able to hear the intercom because the cab had become full of alarms caused by the damage the train had sustained. Both members of train crew agreed on their next steps. The driver turned off the train's engines and switched on its headlights to give a flashing hazard warning. Think of the hazard lights on your car, it's virtually exactly the same, except it's just the headlights flashing instead of separate lights. Any other train that saw these lights would need to come to a stop as soon as they came into view. It's a recognised emergency signal on the railway. The driver also pressed the emergency call button on the train's radio but found that there was no signal due to their location within the depths of the tunnel. In previous episodes, we've talked about protecting a train in the event of an emergency, and this became the priority for the train crew in the tunnel under the Pennines. One aspect of this is ensuring that other people know that you're in trouble. The driver was to take care of this. His radio had no signal, so now they needed to find the next best way of contacting the signaller. The driver estimated that the train had stopped about a quarter of a mile from the portal at the north end of the tunnel, so he set off in that direction on foot to go to the nearest signal that was fitted with a telephone. At about 1.35 in the morning, the driver reached the first signal outside the tunnel, which was Papa November 327. He used the telephone at that signal to make an emergency call to the signaller, where he reported what had happened and asked for all of the emergency services to attend. At the same time, the conductor got off the train and placed track circuit operating clips on both lines. Again, we've previously mentioned these, but the short version for those who've missed that is that they trick the automated systems into thinking a train is on the track. This would reset signals to danger and protect the lines where the train stranded. On this date, it worked exactly as designed, and when the conductor put a track circuit operating clip on the line adjacent to the train, it worked correctly and caused the signal outside the tunnel to go to danger and the relevant track circuit to show occupied in Preston signal box. This meant that the signaller instantly realised that something was wrong, so took action to stop any trains approaching the tunnel from both directions. He also asked Network Rail Control to make an emergency call to 1PAPA02, but as the train crew had already experienced, the, the call wouldn't be received because there was no radio reception in the tunnel. All of this meant that when the driver spoke to the signaller, he was happy to be informed that his train was already protected. Details were discussed about the location of the train and the emergency services were summoned. And at two minutes past two, the first fire brigade tender arrived at the north portal of the tunnel, quickly followed by a network rail mobile operations manager. They met the driver at the signal and by 13 minutes past, they were joined by police and ambulance and they all made their way back into the tunnel towards the train. 
It was at this point that the driver received the first bit of good news he'd had for a little while. Against the odds, none of his passengers had been injured. Preparation for the evacuation started immediately. TPE arranged for a coach to retrieve the stranded passengers from Walsden Station just north of the tunnel. West Yorkshire Fire Service set up emergency lighting in the tunnel and then set up a safe path for passengers to walk along. By now it was quarter to four in the morning and it was about time for passengers to start making their way towards the tunnel. At that time, ice fell on the roof of the train causing some significant concern with both rescuers and the rescued. This ice had fallen onto the roof of the middle carriage, which was directly underneath a ventilation shaft in the roof of the tunnel. At that point, everyone was moved into the lead vehicle, closest to the tunnel mouth, and not below a ventilation shaft. The fire brigade decided to remove all the ice from above the evacuation route as a fairly sensible precaution, and eventually, at ten minutes past four, the evacuation, which took half an hour, finally took place. Passengers were assessed by the ambulance service and all but one then continued their journey by road. One elderly passenger had complained of chest pains and was taken to a hospital in Todmorden as a precaution but quickly discharged. With the evacuation of passengers complete, the next part was the recovery of the train itself. Later that day, the front bogey of the train was re-railed and after some examination by fitters and traction inspectors, it was moved to Ardwick Depot in Manchester under its own power. The incident had taken place, the recovery completed, and now the real work could begin. The Rail Accident Investigation Branch were called in to investigate the derailment, and as ever, they had a list of questions to answer. Normally, when we've covered derailments, the first question we need to ask is what the event instigating the derailment itself was. However, on this occasion, it was abundantly clear. The large, solid pile of ice, which still lay across the lines of the summit tunnel, admittedly carved out a bit on the downside by the passage of Wapapa 2-0, This immediate cause, listed by the RAIB, was that train 1 Papa 02 approached and struck a pile of ice on the track in Summit Tunnel. For once, there was no ambiguity on the cause, so the first question shifted to events that had led to the pile of ice being exactly where it shouldn't have been, a solid mass across an active railway line. The second question is whether there were any safety measures that had failed to prevent the accident from taking place. And as always, we tried to cover was there anything that could have been done to prevent a reoccurrence going forwards. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Summit Tunnel had been constructed, as we said earlier on, very early in the life of the railways. During its construction, engineers had sunk 14 vertical shafts down from the top of the hills to what would be track level. These were used to get the tunnel in a straight line from survey points. Two of them were sealed after the construction and the remainder were retained for ventilation, which was especially crucial considering that steam traction would be using the structure initially. Over the life of the tunnel, a further three shafts were closed, but the remaining ones were remained. The tenth shaft from the Manchester side was now the deepest remaining shaft, 87 metres from tunnel roof to the ground level above. And this was the shaft below which lay the unfortunate pile of ice. Over the course of the investigation, it was ascertained that this pile had amounted to between 20 and 25 tonnes of ice, which I think in a sentence clearly demonstrates how much of an issue this was. In fact, the pile was measured to be about 1.6 metres tall and 8 metres long. And the 11th shaft, which the train had finally come to a stand below, also had an associated pile of ice beneath it. The location of these piles under the shaft clearly linked the two features intrinsically, so the task became one of discovering how they ended up there. The main piece of evidence that would show everyone the source of these piles was easily observed on the day of the accident by looking at the shafts themselves. In fact, ice could still be seen clinging to the walls of them even after these substantial piles had accumulated beneath and anywhere that water had been able to run within the tunnels had also built up a considerable layer of ice. Formation of ice where water existed isn't particularly unheard of in England. Let's be fair, this was December, in the hills in the middle of winter. To not find ice would have been more unusual, but why on this occasion had it led to such a sequence of events? To understand, the RAIB turned to weather reports. On the 16th of December, the ambient temperature in this area had dropped to below zero, and it didn't budge for ten days. Over this time, water already present in the tunnel system had well and truly frozen. 
water running through the drainage system or down the tunnel walls from the head of the shaft 87 metres above, or through the groundwater seeping through the tunnel linings, froze as well. Now on the 27th, this 10-day period of freezing temperatures was followed by the beginning of a thaw in the area, and that's where the problems began. The warmer outside air entered the tunnel over time, but it's not known precisely how quickly. The air inside the ventilation shaft warmed up, the ice warmed up, began to melt. Once it began melting, it was only a matter of time until it began to break away from the lining of the shaft. It inevitably, at this point, fell onto the tracks below. While it can't be ascertained whether all of the pile fell in one go, it was certainly formed by many pieces of ice across a range of sizes. The theory of multiple falls was certainly reinforced by the fact that ice was still falling at the point the accident took place, with ice collapsing from shaft 11 onto the roof of the train during the rescue. Due to the Christmas shutdown, trains hadn't passed through the tunnel for around 75 hours, so any normal vibrations which might have gently released ice simply didn't occur. One Papa Zero Two was the first train to travel through the tunnel since Christmas Eve. But it shouldn't have been. Do you remember quite early in the episode when I said First Transparent Express's services had carried a number of Northern Rail passengers around? On the 27th, due to industrial action by Northern employees, the company had been forced to cancel a number of its services on the first day of service, including its Manchester to Leeds trains. All of Northern's Manchester to Leeds trains ran via the Calder Valley, not Stanage. So the Summit Tunnel would have seen a regular train service on the day. Now, this doesn't mean that had Northern been running its services on the 27th, that this pile of ice wouldn't have fallen in its entirety overnight prior to one Papa Zero Two passing, but it may have been dropped in smaller, less destructive amounts by, by, by vibrations over the course of the day. However, conversely, that being said, if the fall had took place in one go and it had occurred over the course of the day on the 27th, this could have resulted in it falling in front of one of Northern's trains, a fleet predominantly lighter and older than TPEs. So who's to say how the front end of a pacer or sprinter would have come out when pitted against 20 tonnes of ice? As part of the investigation, the RAIB needed to understand the reasons why so much water was present in the tunnel and shafts, aside from the obvious hole to the sky which the shafts entailed. It was actually found that the water that froze and formed the ice in the ventilation shaft had seeped mainly through its lining. The tunnel bore and the ventilation shaft linings in Summit Tunnel are made of brick and are not designed to be waterproof. Because of this, there are many areas within the tunnel that are inherently wet, and ventilation shafts 10 and 11 were known by Network Rail to be very wet areas. Snowfall on the hills above the tunnel would melt and become groundwater, which ran through as far as a shaft and tunnel where it would then start to run downwards. In July 2006, the shaft had received its most recent detailed inspection and the examiner noted in the report that it was very wet. First being wet 11 metres from the top and then getting progressively wetter down the remaining 76 metres of its length. This was followed by the experience of the crews on the scene of the accident and those following up afterwards. Water was pouring from ventilation shaft 11 onto the top of the train, and while on site, the RAIB observed a lot of water flowing down the side of ventilation shaft 10. 
In fact, during a follow-up site visit just two weeks later, the RAIB observed water pouring from both of these ventilation shafts. Following all of this, it was clear that the presence of the ice on the track was the result of the unchecked build-up of ice caused by the permeability of the lining, the influx of water, and the prolonged period of freezing conditions. All of this followed by a badly timed thaw. As I said earlier, the next point of inquiry was whether or not there were safety systems in place which could have prevented the accident from taking place. And the swift answer, as so often tends to be the case in these episodes, is that yes, there was a system which could have had an impact. The Tunnel Management Strategy. The very catchily named Network Rail Company Standard NR-L1-CIV-032-The Management of Structures is the key here. This very wordly titled document defines the procedures that have to be followed to aim to eliminate any unacceptable risk from network rail structures to the operating railway. One of the requirements of this document is that each tunnel must have a tunnel management strategy, a document which in its first part collates information about the tunnel, such as its general history, topography, incident history, and this section can also include some recommendations. The second part of the document is a risk assessment, and the third is an action plan. So, it is understandable that this document was reviewed as part of the investigation into the derailment, and what was found threw up some bigger concerns. Part 1 of the Summit Tunnel Management Strategy recommended that this tunnel should have an inspection regime for ice. It stated that a system needs to be established, to allow the inspection and removal of icicles in Summit Tunnel in cold weather. Now I said that part one can include recommendations, but it doesn't normally happen. However, if the consultants who produce this part of the report find information that requires actions to be taken, then they can record this requirement by making a recommendation in part one. The challenge is, however, that the recipients of the strategy, Network Rail's Structures Management Engineers, don't have a process for handling any such recommendations. Because of this, the Network Rail Structures Management Engineers did not implement the recommendations. However, the REIB could not find any record of the decision not to. Network Rail explained that it was their view that because it wasn't implemented, because there had only been two previous incidents recorded in Summit Tunnel that involved ICE, and that these had happened in 1982, and 1987, some time before. In January 1982, problems were reported with a large amount of ice on and between the tracks in places, particularly beneath closed ventilation shaft 9 and open ventilation shafts 10 and 11. And in January 1987, a train reported hitting an object near ventilation shaft 11. A subsequent inspection noted that the train had hit ice. Both incidents were such a long time ago, and also the structures management engineers thought that the infrastructure maintenance staff would know that they should be carrying out such additional inspections and consequent ice removal. It's fairly clear that this wasn't exactly understood by the local inspectors. There was another part of protection around assets in cold weather, and this was the extreme weather plans. 
During 2010, Network Rail's asset management function produced an extreme weather plan for the northern section of the LNW, the London Northwestern route, and also a list of structures on that route at risk from extreme weather events. This plan aimed to provide maintenance staff who go out onto the railway each day with guidance on assets such as earthworks and structures. It included guidance on what to look for during extreme weather. Unsurprisingly, ice in tunnels was identified as a specific risk and the guidance gave general advice on what infrastructure maintenance staff should do. Network Rail's asset management function also wanted this information to be used as a guide on where to go first in extreme weather when structures might need to be looked at. With this in mind, they prepared a presentation that recommended the extreme weather plan and list of structures were passed to track section managers and staff who carry out basic visual inspections. However, the presentation itself did not state that there was a requirement for it to be briefed out. The presentation was first given to the regional engineering manager during a maintenance engineers meeting in August 2010 and no instruction was given at this meeting for it to be briefed. Later that month, the presentation was included as part of the formal technical briefing process and in September 2010 it also issued the briefing in booklet form so that it could be used by staff who carry out basic visual track inspections. However, there is no record that either the briefing or the booklet were received by local track section managers or the staff who carry out the inspections in the summit tunnel area. The fact of the matter is that other than fortnightly basic visual track inspections, the maintenance staff based at the local depot didn't carry out any inspections to look for ice and summit tunnel during periods of extreme cold weather. Those in the asset management team just assumed, incorrectly, that they would know that they were supposed to do additional inspections. Now, it was clear that an opportunity had been missed here, and we wonder why the old adage about assumptions exists. Before we move on from the tunnel management strategy, there is one further aspect of it that we need to discuss. Part 3 of the Summit Tunnel Action Plan did include a risk mitigation for ice formation that called for a speed or operating restriction to be put in place after a cold night. Because it had made a specific note that there was a large history of icicles forming in the tunnel, and due to the scale of the hazard caused by icicles obstructing trains, this risk was rated as significant. However, the risk assessment did not consider the hazards or risks associated with thaw conditions, or the extended periods of route closure during extreme weather. To mitigate the risk of icicles, the action plan called for the first trains through the tunnel to run at a reduced speed after a heavy frost, so that they could look for icicles. However, the REIB found no evidence that this mitigation measure was ever put in place by network rail operations. There is no evidence whatsoever of it being included in either the sectional appendix or the instructions at the signal box which controlled the tunnel. In fact, the RAIB found no operating restrictions or signal box local instructions in place at Preston Power Signal Box that required the signaller to take any specific action before allowing a train to pass through the tunnel in any particular weather conditions. Had the signaller been required to do so, he could have stopped train 1PAPA02 and instructed its driver to examine the line. Examining the line is a process where a signaller will instruct a driver to pass over a line at a speed not exceeding 10 mile an hour in a tunnel, so that they can visually check that it is safe, and be ready to stop if required. 
Of course, this didn't happen because he had no concerns over the status of the line. This was due to the fact he had no reports of ice from other drivers, because no other drivers were running trains through there, and because infrastructure maintenance staff had not done any inspections on the tunnel. Congratulations if you got this far through the podcast, because I can just feel my voice getting worse and worse as we continue. Another factor that could have influenced this incident would have been had another train examined the line prior to any passenger trains running. Network Rail can sometimes arrange for an additional train to run over a section of line to check its status before the planned train service then runs over it. These trains are called route-proving trains, as in proving that the route is safe. On the LNW area of the National Network, Arrangements were made for three diesel locomotives fitted with miniature snow ploughs to be in place at locations on the West Coast Main Line from the 27th of December so that they could be used for snow clearance duties and route proving if required. Two electric locomotives were also planned to run over the West Coast Main Line to keep the overhead electric wires clear of ice. And route control also arranged for a diesel locomotive to be available if required for proving the route between Birmingham and London Marylebone. However... LNW Route Control did not plan to run any route-proving trains over any other lines. The cross-Pennine routes were not to be examined prior to the resumption of train services. The final opportunity to prevent this accident taking place had come about the day prior to the accident. Morley Tunnel is located on the railway line between Leeds and Huddersfield, just 20 miles from Summit. At around 6.30 in the morning on the 27th, the first eastbound train to run through the tunnel since Christmas struck icicles hanging from the bottom of the ventilation shaft, and the driver's windscreen was broken. Later that day, at about half two in the afternoon, another eastbound train struck a large quantity of ice lying on the track below a ventilation shaft. The train remained on the rails, but some of its equipment underneath was damaged. These incidents were not recorded properly by Network Rail's route control staff for the region, which was now the LNE, the London Northeastern region. Because of this, the opportunity was lost for someone to identify the incidents and recognise there was a risk of ice formation in tunnels and ventilation shafts, especially after a period when no trains had been running. And that could have triggered action at a local or national level. For example, the next day after an accident took place in the Summit Tunnel, Network Rail's Head of Asset Management issued an instruction that was disseminated nationally calling for Network Rail to identify those tunnels which had a significant build-up of ice and to consider putting operating restrictions in place if there was a risk of derailing a train. If this action had been taken after the events in Morley Tunnel, then an inspection of the Summit Tunnel, which also runs under the Pennines and is only 20 miles away and has ventilation shafts, might have taken place and the accident might have been averted. Even as soon as the point where the report was issued, the RIB were able to report on actions already being taken by relevant parties to prevent a reoccurrence. Since the accident, Network Rail arranged for their weather forecast provider to issue two new alerts when low temperatures are recorded. If the ambient air temperature has been continuously below 1 degree, for three consecutive days a yellow alert is issued. 
and this would be used to get infrastructure maintenance staff to prepare to carry out additional inspections for ice and icicles. If the ambient air temperature has been below 1 for 5 continuous days, a red alert is issued. When that alert is issued, maintenance staff will be mobilised to carry out additional inspections for ice and icicles. A red alert will then be issued every day while the temperature remains continuously below 1 degree. This removes the risk that structures will not be examined for dangerous ice build-up. Additionally, Network Rail installed temperature sensors in Summit Tunnel and on a similar tunnel on the settled Carlisle line, Bleemore. This enabled them to understand how temperatures inside the tunnel compared to the ambient temperature outside. Other than these steps, a further five recommendations were levelled against Network Rail as part of the conclusions of the report. The first was that Network Rail must review the drainage arrangements in Summit Tunnel to try and mitigate the formation of ice, and the second, that Network Rail should identify structures where trains may be at risk after a period of services being stopped, and then put in place procedures that result in checks that it is safe for trains to operate at the permitted line speed before resuming the train service. The last three actions all relate to Network Rail improving their processes around management of training, extreme weather conditions and the distribution of safety information. A response letter published by the Office of Rail and Road in 2014 told how all of these recommendations had been implemented with the exception of the first which was still ongoing, most likely due to the sheer complexity of the matter at hand. In any case, implementation of the other recommendations had the desired effect, and despite 10 more years of continued use of the tunnel, and 10 more Christmas shutdowns with no trains travelling, no repeat of the incident has taken place. The tunnel at the summit of the line between Rochdale and Tobedon was built many, many years ago, like I said, between 1838 and 1841. One of the only ways of ensuring a straight tunnel at that point was the sinking of a great number of shafts at survey points. Luckily nowadays there are several other ways of doing that. GPS, laser guidance, things that allowed us to build a tunnel under the, the English Channel without having to sink a ventilation shaft every 200 metres. Modern ventilation systems and a move to diesel and electric traction, not steam, has also mitigated the need for excessive ventilation shafts. So water ingress in that respect is far less of a problem. Most reasonable length tunnels will now require little in the way of ventilation shafts to the surface. Take into account the channel tunnel. 23 mile underwater section doesn't require ventilation shafts. The shaft at each end of this is sufficient carefully considered airflow between the twin running tunnels and the service tunnel allow it to be managed in that way. Now this lack of regular ventilation shaft is also strengthened by the fact that the linings of most tunnels now include a waterproof membrane of some description that prevents groundwater from flowing into the tunnels themselves. And those tunnels that have a known problem which poses a risk have extensive monitoring and pumping equipment. But We've already covered the most important improvements, and frustratingly they weren't improvements so much as the development on the existing rules to make sure they actually happened. The recommendations levied against Network Rail were met. 
All that was needed to prevent the derailment of the training summit tunnel was a robust method of finding unsafe conditions and preventing the passage of trains through them. Network Rail had already written the management plan. They just didn't manage the situation. The last thing that I want to bring up as part of today's episode is the subject of unofficial nicknaming of units and locomotives on the railway. We know that companies have always had a fine tradition of officially naming trains. A walk around any railway museum will pay testament to that. From just the Great Hall at York, I can immediately pull Duchess of Hamilton, Mallard and Evening Star out of the back of my head, including a few other ones. This has continued into modern times, with companies like GWR, bestowing their new A2X stock with the names of wonderful individuals such as Captain Sir Tom Moore. What quite often doesn't make its way outside of the industry is the unofficial nicknames bestowed on specific trains by members of crew, normally due to incidents in their past. Quite often these can be dark, born of the gallows humour that is so often required in industries where nasty things are not too far away, Nicknames relate to fatalities, etc. But I won't share any examples of those here. But anybody from the industry will probably know exactly the sort of thing I'm referring to. However, for every dark nickname, there are some pretty light-hearted ones to accompany them. And 185144, the unit which suddenly found itself in a mound of frozen debris in a cold icy tunnel in 2010... Well, it was always going to be Titanic, wasn't it? Thanks for tuning in to episode 11. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media or me on social media. Twitter, Facebook, just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you are interested in supporting us, please go up and look at Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. Don't forget we've still got some railway merch on the shop page at signals to danger.com. Until the next episode, travel safe. <laughs>